You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight is coming from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but 
If it is my will that he remained until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, for this gospel account that we have had nine months or so to think through. You've revealed yourself to the disciples in this way on the boat that day in the Sea of Galilee. We pray that you would reveal yourself now to us as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. I feel like summer's wrapping up. The, the room's a little fuller. You're all back from vacation. It's good to see you all. And I, I heard that several of you had like a uh, 12-hour extended version Lord of the Rings marathon yesterday. That sounds awesome and terrible at the same time. 12 hours. Have you ever seen uh, the last movie, of The Return of the King? You know that it's just full of false endings. You're like, oh, now it's over. Nope. Nope, 20 more minutes. Now it's surely, no, it's not. Uh, it just has so many loose ends to tie up. My boys are experiencing this right now. We're nearing, well, we're, we're right in the middle of Return of the King, uh, the book. The ring has just been destroyed. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, I guess you've had like 68 years uh, to read that book. But we still have like half the book to read. Like the ring has just been destroyed and there's still so much to go. They're like, what else has to happen? Uh, but these are important chapters that we still have to read. The, the rest of the book isn't just one giant appendix, though there are many appendices at the end of that book also. Uh, there's, it's not just a giant appendix that is like disconnected from the rest of the narrative. There's an epilogue after the ring, ring is destroyed. There's still things to do. There's themes and characters and plot points that need to have their loose ends tied up. The climax has happened, the wave has passed, and yet there are still questions to answer. That's what we have here tonight as we finish up this book. It seems like what we got to last week, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, like that would have been a great place for John to wrap up his book. Listen to this. We, we got to this last week. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Like, the ring has been destroyed. Jesus is the Christ. Believe in him. Follow him. That would have been a great place for John to, like, wrap it up and close it up. But there are still loose ends to tie up. There are still things that we have to get to. And just as John started this entire gospel account in chapter 1 with a prologue that preceded the main action of the narrative, now he's going to end with an epilogue that comes after the main action. As one commentator puts it, the prologue sketches the prehistory to the gospel story, while the epilogue foresees its post-history. Just as the prologue goes back in time to creation, so the epilogue previews the future mission of the disciples. The time projected by the epilogue runs into the future coming of Jesus. Its last words in verse 23 are Jesus' words, until I come. These are Jesus' last words, corresponding at the other end of time to the first words of the prologue, 1-1, in the beginning. There is some long past and long forward stuff going after and before the action here. And we've come a long way in this gospel. 
a whole long way. And while I am beginning to get more and more excited to begin Ecclesiastes in two weeks, next week we'll have Cody Garrett preach for us, which I'm really pumped about. But we'll get to Ecclesiastes in two weeks. But I'm really, really going to miss time in this gospel, not only throughout the week and time and studying immersion of this book, but together with you. But we're not done yet. John and we have some tying up to do this evening. And just an incredible chapter. I love this chapter. So just as we saw time, pre- and post-history compared in the prologue and epilogue, we're going to think through this chapter under three headings tonight. Jesus provides in the present, he redeems the past, and he prepares for the future. Present, past, and future. So first of all, Jesus provides in the present. So we're back in Galilee, where, where Jesus and the disciples are from. In Mark's gospel, we, found out that, or we find out that Jesus has told the disciples to leave Jerusalem, go back to Galilee, and wait for him. So they do. They get home, and they're waiting. Things are perhaps like pretty nostalgic. Like the ring is destroyed. They're back in the shire. And you've got the like, da, 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 ba, da, ba, da. that music is back in, in Galilee, right? Things are just, it's like great. Jesus has risen from the dead. New creation has begun. And yet there is a new creation. The universe has been transformed. They need to eat though. They're hungry. So they're out in the early morning before dawn and they're fishing. They're professional fishermen and yet they've caught nothing. They haven't lost all their skills. They haven't forgotten everything that there's to know about fishing. But they're out there catching nothing. With each pull of the empty net, maybe one of them remembers when John told them in chapter 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing. And they just keep pulling empty net after empty net. But then someone appears from the beach. Perhaps it's just still before dawn and it's hard to see. They can't tell who he is. And someone tells them to try the other side. And I'm not a fisherman. I know some of you are. But I can imagine it might be a bit off-putting if someone from many, like a hundred yards away says, hey, try the other side. There's a spot over there. Like, you don't know what you're doing, right? Hey, boys, Jesus basically yells at them. That side isn't working. Maybe try the other one. And they've got to be like, who's this guy I think he is? Try the, other, don't try the other side, right? But they do. And maybe John or one of the others is reminded of when Jesus did something very similar with them that, that day that this very thing happened again earlier in their time with him and he charged them to become fishers of men. They moved the nets to the other side and surprise, surprise, it's all full. They're unable to pull everything in. And at that moment, John knows that it's Jesus. It's the Lord, he says, he's here and he has provided for us. And when Peter hears this, like, he can't stop himself. I think our English translations are a little weird here. I think he probably gets his tunic and he, like, ties it up around himself so that he can swim. He jumps in and starts swimming to the beach just to get to the shore as fast as he can. The other disciples, they eventually get there in the boat and they find Jesus sitting around a fire. And he's already got this thing going and he's roasting some fish. We don't know what, where he got his fish, if he caught it himself or what. But the disciples, they probably anchor their boat with a full net secured on the other side. And when they get there, Peter runs out and drags in the, the net, pulls in 153 fish. Now, two things. Uh, one, Peter's a really strong dude. This would have been difficult, but not impossible. He's walking now in uh, shallow water rather than trying to pull a giant net over the top of a boat, uh, which is why it was probably difficult 
before. And then two, the number is important. As Peter knows, and as all of you know, uh, 17 is the triangular number of 153. And since uh, there are 17 nations mentioned in Acts 2 at Pentecost, this is clearly symbolic of the fullness of the nations. Not only that, but there are, that seven is a full and perfect number, which combined with the Ten Commandments, well, you can just see why this is important. Uh, just kidding. 153 doesn't mean anything. Uh, uh, it's just how many fish there were. Uh, but that hasn't stopped like endless speculation on why this number was important throughout the centuries. There isn't anything fishy going on with this number though. Sorry, it's just, sorry, I'm sorry. It's just, uh, it's just one more throwaway detail though that would give credence to this being reliable eyewitness testimony. Like, numbers ingrain themselves into your head, right? Like all of you know your first address, don't you? 2228 Houston Place. My first phone number was 382-4409. In 1993, the Bills lost to the Cowboys. Yes, and they lost in Super Bowl 27, 52 to 17. And I will never forget any of those numbers because numbers just do that. John remembers, as fishermen do, they counted out the fish of their catch, and he remembered. If the number is indicating anything, though, it's likely just showing the huge overprovision of Jesus. Just, it's too full, and yet the nets don't even break. Just like he provided too much wine in chapter 2, and he provided too much bread in chapter 6. He is providing. But what's going on here with this breakfast? I mean, after all, John has already told us that Jesus has performed tons of signs that he didn't think were important enough for him to include in this gospel account. Like of all the signs that John could have included, of all the things that Jesus did, hyperbolically we'll see him say that even the books and libraries of the world couldn't contain everything that he did. So why this one? Why this breakfast on the beach? Well, it's a remarkable story and it's a very, very important one for us. Jesus is providing the very real needs of his disciples in a personal, in an intimate, in a kind way, on the beach with them. I clearly remember a friend reflecting on this story, thinking about his then three-and-a-half-year-old daughter who was really delayed in her speech. They began meeting with a speech therapist who kind of went through the history of speech therapy with them. And she told them that back in the old days, you know, you'd take your small child in to meet with a therapist and they would sit across from the table in a sterile room and the uh, therapist would pull, hold up a flashcard and dog, cat, car, princess, right? And then you just, when, when they would say it incorrectly, you correct the child. And through years and decades of study and observation, uh, therapists have now realized that it's so much better ditch the table, get on the ground with the child, and just speak. And when the child says a word incorrectly, well, then you just start to say it correctly four or five times in the next few minutes. And then the parent does this throughout the week, looking into the eyes, and not just uh, holding up flashcards, inviting the child to follow you in your example of correct speech. But I think that we can tend toward thinking about Jesus wrongly in this way. Like some therapist in a cold and sterile room just holding up the flashcards that you're supposed to remember. Grace, everybody got it? Forgiveness, church, read your Bible, love, prayer, my glory. You got it? Fix it, know it, understand it, correct your thinking, correct your speech. And this is not the way the Savior comes to us, is it? 
Here he is in the sand, getting dirty, providing, preparing, eating with his people, showing them these things, showing us these things, inviting us into understanding, inviting us into following him. And as we'll see, not frustratingly so, not disappointed in us, but grace upon grace, a lavish feast. Not just miraculously popping out of nowhere, already prepared fish, but in patience and kindness and care and thoughtfulness, cooking these fish for them. Jesus hasn't just died on the cross to get you off the hook for then you to move on with your life, to provide some eternal life for you in the future, but to provide for you in the here and now. Eternal life is not something that we await, but something that we begin today, walking and living with our Savior. He provides in the present all the things that he has promised throughout this book. He provides joy. He provides peace. He provides the Holy Spirit by his sitting, by his leading, and even gently correcting us. So if we've seen him provide for the disciples and for us here in the present, there is still an elephant in the room. There's an elephant on the beach that can't be ignored any longer. Like if you're reading this gospel account for the very first time, you had no familiarity with the Bible, and you're reading through this gospel account, you're wondering, hey, what's going to happen with Peter? Like we've seen him a couple times, but I distinctly remember him like failing, denying Jesus on the night of his trial. We've got to tie up this loose end. So Jesus ties it up. He not only provides in the present, but Jesus also redeems the past. Let's read this Peter vignette again, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This isn't the first time we've seen Peter since the crucifixion, not even including like we've seen him appear swimming along this in the, earlier in this chapter. We saw him on Easter morning at the empty tomb with John, and then presumably he was with the rest of the disciples twice when Jesus shows up through, a unlocked, or through locked doors and told them, peace be with you. But it's just kind of been hanging. This Peter story has been hanging since chapter 18. In chapter 13, Peter had told Jesus that he would follow him even if it meant his own death. And then within just a couple of hours, when it isn't altogether clear that it would have meant his death, he flaked, completely flaked. His words and his commitments were way out in front of his love for Jesus. So here they are. They're probably still in front of the other disciples. They're all still sitting here. A charcoal fire burning just like the one that Peter stood around when he denied Jesus. Maybe even the smell of that charcoal in his nose brought back just a wave of guilt. And Jesus turns to Peter and asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter, the rock, the, the, the name that he had given to Peter. He called him by his old self. Jesus is asking him, are you still mine? Are you still my disciple? 
but also pointedly reminding Peter of that night of overconfidence. It could have been, it could be that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than these, meaning like the fish that are all around. Perhaps you've heard a sermon I have of uh, Jesus is like confronting the vocation that Peter has seemingly returned to after Jesus told him to become a fisherman. Hey, don't love the fish more than you love me. Uh, but I think it seems more likely that Jesus is asking, not do you love me more than these fish, but do you still think that you love me more than these disciples who are sitting around the fire with us? You were so overconfident that night, weren't you? Even if all of the others abandon you, even if none of them are willing to go to their deaths, I'm not. I will. I will not forsake you. I will go to my death for you. Jesus is saying, you still think that? You still think so? Do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. If you love me, then go from here. Teach and provide for my flock, for my sheep. And if we didn't know what was coming, if you didn't hear the whole thing read just a few minutes ago, perhaps Peter was thinking, all right, great, I can do that. Like, who has two thumbs and is back to being Jesus' main go-to guy? This guy. Like, I, I am back. He has sent me out with a job. But then Jesus will not let him off the hook that easy. Jesus hasn't, isn't having any of that. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. I don't think there's really anything to make a big to-do about here and like the difference of the Greek words for love throughout this three, whole thing or the Greek words from like sheep and lamb. Perhaps you've heard that. Uh, I don't think that's a big deal. For one thing, when Jesus said these words, he would have been spoke, speaking in Aramaic and not Greek. And so the distinction there it probably wasn't there when he spoke it but also that John uses these two words these Greek words of love sorry if you don't know what I'm talking about just forget it uh, but if you've heard a sermon like this John uses these two words uh, for love interchangeably uh, for the way that the father loves the son the way that Jesus loved Lazarus both words are used here so I don't think we need to get too heavy into the Greek to like unlock some special meaning about what Jesus is doing here he's just drilling deeper and deeper down into Peter's soul like turning leaning the drill bit this way and that to like clean out all of the pride and self-confidence in Peter's soul after the second question like, Peter must have been thrown. Like, why is he asking me this again? I just told you. You know that I love you. But it's after the third time, John tells us he's grieved. Like, he doesn't, like, it's, it's too much. I think he finally realizes what Jesus is doing. The three times that I've denied him, now he's asking me a third time. And it's too much to bear. But Jesus doesn't condemn him, does he? We have no idea what would have happened in Peter's life without his sinfully fearful denial of Jesus and without this subsequent restoration on this day on the beach. Maybe if this hadn't happened, like Peter would have gone out pastoring, shepherding, and he could have become like this impatient, intolerant for any kind of sin or stumbling. Anytime someone wavered in the faith, be condemnation, maybe in like a, a sense of guilt or failure in how he himself denied the Lord that day. He would have been tempted to think that he now had a lot to make up for. 
in his life and in his ministry. And then his obedience to Jesus would have just come out of like a begrudging and compulsory obedience. Maybe even he would have been too ashamed or embarrassed to talk about that night of Jesus's trial as he went along with uh, the disciples, as he started a new church, he would have been too embarrassed to talk about it. He would have hoped that his church would have never found out about that deep sin on that night before. But this is not the gospel and this is not what the cross has come to accomplish. This is not the kind of grace-dependent life that Jesus wanted to throw Peter into the depths of. I once heard Ray Ortland describe our misunderstanding of grace as a wrong assumption that it's a credit card and not a debit card. We know as Christians that Jesus is going to cover our sins. He's going to pay for everything up front. But then our tendency is to think that, even though we would never consciously say this, think that we still owe him. Now that he has paid for things up front, now we have to make up the balance and pay our debt. So we owe him a life of obedience. We owe him our desires. When we mess up in faithlessness or in sin or in doubt, now like the interest rate has just raised and we have to double our efforts. We have to make sure that we're obeying this week. We have to make sure that we're at like every event that the church has to offer. We have to start giving to the church or start giving more to the church to make sure that we read our Bibles like five times this week. Not on the weekends though, that'd be too serious. But instead of a credit card, that needs to get paid though, the gospel of grace is a debit card. Jesus has won our forgiveness, won our acceptance into the family of God fully and finally. It is finished, he says, as he takes his final breath. He has given us a full inheritance of of himself and an infinite well of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's as if we have a trillionaire father who has just given us a debit card opened the door to the mall and said, go start swiping it. Just go start swiping. Withdrawing more and more and more from the infinite account. Your sin, your weakness, your faithlessness, and your doubt are not obstacles to God's grace. They are a prerequisite. So we can walk out of here understanding that we are fearful. We are broken like Peter, but so confident in the work of Christ on our behalf. His measureless love, his unending grace, an unplumbable depth, a well of love and grace. That when we find ourselves in anxiousness, anxiousness, swipe. When we find ourselves in pride, or in coveting others, swipe, swipe. When we find ourselves in a loss of self-control, in discontentment, of anger, swipe it, swipe. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Swipe the card of his grace. But wait, Nathan, you, get, you, you better be, have some nuance here. You gotta be careful preaching that stuff, dude. Like, if you don't add in that nuance, like, people are gonna be really tempted to think that, like, obedience isn't that important. Holiness isn't that important. And if that was your first inclination, as you hear me saying something like that, of just keep swiping the card of grace, and I'm afraid you might not understand the depths of grace, the wonder of God's love for us. 
when we assume that God's grace is only about initial forgiveness, about getting us legally cleared on the upfront, but then now we just have to keep our head down and just obey and clean ourselves up, well, now obedience can become begrudging and compulsory. It's only through a limitless swiping of the debit card of God's grace that real transformative love and obedience comes. We're saying, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. And that is not just for people who are not Christians. We sang that to our souls. We sang that to each other. Jesus stands ready to save you initially and then transform you to the uttermost, full of pity, love, and power. All of us are just as weak and fearful and broken as Peter, and yet most of us tend toward being just as self-confident, just as prideful to admit our ongoing weakness. It's actually no small thing for Jesus to get us to a place where we would agree with the great Rich Mullins. I introduced my kids to Rich Mullins last night, going over to the Welsh's house for dinner. It's great. And uh, man, it's so 90s, but man, how about this song? We're not as strong as we think we are. Turn around to my kids and you better let that sink in. That takes a lot for God by his spirit through brokenness to get us to that place where we can agree with Rich Mullins and sing that, that we are not as strong as we think we are. Peter's heart and love for Christ needed to catch up with his words, with his dogged commitment to him. And it happens through his brokenness, his failure. And it seems that it did do that because he would later write in 1 Peter 3, Peter would write, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Subtext, of which I am. That he might bring us to God. So like we talked about months ago in John 2, grace, swiping that debit card of God's grace, that, that's left-handed stuff. Remember this? If you're right-handed, using your right hand is really easy. It's natural. It's reflexive. If a ball gets thrown at you out of nowhere, like you just naturally stick that right hand up, that's what you do. You can use your right hand for tasks without, without even thinking about it. But the way of grace, the way of Christ arriving in your life, intervening, his providing everything that you need, his death for yours, his life for yours, his righteousness for you, so that now you are free to live and love God out of love and joy. Well, that, that's just left-handed stuff. It's not natural. And just like sitting down and writing a paragraph with your left hand would take really intense focus and concentration, perhaps even practice. It requires you to act and react slowly and not just instinctually and reflexively. Living gospel-centered, grace-motivated lives isn't the natural bent of our hearts. Like learning to write left-handed takes practice. It takes years, if not multiple decades upon decades to learn the way of grace. To expect growth in godliness, but still in our weakness and still in need of immense, immense grace. It takes living 
in a community where we are all encouraging one another to not live instinctually and reflexively, to not assume that I or all of us or any of us have it all together, but in vulnerability and honesty about our weakness, about our brokenness, about our communal need for grace, that this begins to happen. When I first preached that many months ago, Clint afterward encouraged us to maybe tear the bread at the table with your non-dominant hand, if you're right-handed, when you come up here to tear a piece off with your left hand. I've done that every Sunday since, and it's been just a wonderful weekly reminder of my weakness, of kind of the awkwardness of living in a life of grace and the immensity of God's power in his body broken for me. Do that. Keep doing it. It's great. Peter had been living a right-handed, impulsive, and instinctual life of commitment to Christ. But here Jesus is saying, you have nothing. You have nothing. But here, take this debit card of my grace, which gives you everything. Go and swipe with that left hand all you want. But he doesn't just leave him to sit around on the beach to like, stay all day and watch the sunset go down, just reflecting on Jesus' love and his grace for him. He turns this weak man around, transformed by his grace and his love, and he sends him off with a job. He says, here, go care for my sheep. The most precious thing that I have on this earth, my flock, my people, my little children, take care of them, lead them, care for them as I have, not as the shepherds of the world like, we just, like I described in chapter 10, but as I have led and cared for them. Love them as I loved them, which now gets us to our final movement here as Jesus launches his disciples into the future. He prepares for the future. In 18, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus could just be quoting a known proverb here about what happens when you get old. You no longer get to do what you want when you're elderly. People do it for you. But John gives us this little editorial note in verse 19. He says, this, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow him. So stretch out your hands was a like slang or colloquial way to say crucifixion. So Jesus tells Peter that part of taking on Jesus's role of Jesus's under shepherd, part of what it means for Peter to follow Jesus will be for him to suffer like Jesus did. And in fact, tradition tells us that Peter would be crucified and crucified upside down. And maybe if his following Jesus was just out of this instinctual, uh, pre-grace commitment to Jesus, perhaps on that day of, Jesus, or of Peter's crucifixion, he would have been tempted and perhaps gone through with a denial of Jesus, just like he denied him on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. After all, when Peter was cocky and overconfident in the foot washing in chapter 13, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, Peter is humbled. He's forgiven. He's a swimming in grace restored man. His confidence isn't in his faithfulness to Jesus, but in Jesus' faithfulness to him. And he's ready to follow but then he looks up and, and hello there, here is his best bud, John, standing here. 
We don't know if this is jealousy or rivalry. Like if Peter's like, hey, what about him? Like if I'm going to die, like him too, right? Or if it's like genuine care and concern for his buddy. Like I'm going to die for you, Jesus, but like say it ain't so for old Johnny, right? Like please, no, don't, not him too. We don't know. Either way, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, even if John stays alive until Jesus returns, Peter, what difference does it make? In other words, it's not your business. Now, I doubt that many of us sit around wondering how each other is going to die. It'd be weird. I wonder if Eric Lair is going to die in a fiery car crash or by colon cancer. That's a weird one. Sorry, that came up. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen, Eric. Uh, Point being, I don't know, and I don't spend a lot of thought on how each of you are going to die. Uh, But while very few of us, I think, spend very much thought or energy comparing each other's deaths, I think many, if not most of us, are tempted toward comparing each other in our lives. We think, why did my life turn out this way when theirs turned out so much better in that way? Why does the kid in, the, in my class who never studies and sleeps through class, why does he just get to show up and make all A's? Or why does she seem to be blessed with more and more popularity by a life of like self-absorption and arrogance? Why don't I have a different body This one seems to be always sick and breaking down. Why can't I be healthy like them? Why does she have that great husband when I don't? Why don't I have this job or that family or these kids? It sure looks like Jesus doesn't really care for my life, or at least it seems like he's just unfair. To which Aslan the lion might say to you like he said to Shasta at the end of the horse and his boy, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Why Peter will die a martyr's death and not John, I don't know. Why you're in this situation that you're in and others are not, I don't know. But I do know this, that the circumstances of your life are not a barometer for Jesus' love for you. He is always good. He is always wise. And his love and his grace is always sufficient for you. Always. And just like he cried alongside the mourners at Lazarus' death, Jesus is a high priest who can empathize He can join in and care about your trouble and your sadness. And he speaks into our tears like he did with Mary on that Easter Sunday in chapter 20 with the promise of his kingdom that this life is not all there is to hope in. And so we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Both are hard right? Both of those are actually hard. Maybe it's a little bit easier to weep with those who weep, actually. Right? Remembering that life isn't awesome for a whole lot of people, even though my life might be awesome at this moment. Like, that's not easy. 
But many of you need the rest of us to patiently empathize and cry with you. But also for those who are in difficult times of sorrow and loss to be able to see the good that Jesus is working in others' lives. And to praise God for that, to rejoice with them in times of their next promotion or their next pregnancy. That's the body of Christ working, depending on each other for the ways, the different ways that God has gifted us and moving in and amongst us. Learning from each other as we celebrate and as we lose. But walking as Jesus' sheep in a flock together. Following our shepherd. John mourning with Peter over the next many years. The reality of his coming death. And urging him. Encouraging him in faithfulness and hope despite what's coming. And Peter walking along however many more years he has with John. John's long life of coming pastoral ministry and encouraging John not to put his hope in this life in of comfort and ease, but of the next. Jesus is preparing Peter to go from this beach and to build his church. And yet personal competition, rivalry, comparison, All of it will destroy the church. So Jesus is correcting Peter and us to this day. Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Keep yourself from comparison. Your circumstances are not a barometer for Jesus' love for you. I don't know why your circumstances are the way that they are. But he is always good. And he is always wise, and his grace is sufficient. So now humbled, forgiven, restored, commissioned with a job, and with eyes fixed on Jesus, Peter is now ready, along with the disciples then, and with every century following, to both continue the work of Jesus, to point glory to the Father, to push the light further into the darkness, and to direct and encourage others in the following of Jesus, the good shepherd who is leading his flock home to walk together to swipe the debit card of his grace, to depend on it more and more and more. And so putting his stamp of approval and truthfulness on all of this, John concludes, he concludes in the third person in verse 24. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's not making this stuff up. But as he also says in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's not lying. This is truthful eyewitness stuff that is to be believed and is to have lives transformed by. And so just as John began his book reflecting on the greatness and the power and the beauty of Jesus, he wraps it up in the same way in verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is not just a great story, but it is a great God. And those speaking in hyperbole, well, well, maybe John isn't, right? Because if Jesus is the word of the creative word of the universe made flesh, then everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry... Everything that Jesus 
has done since creating the universe in human history and in all of the galaxies of the universe, then yes, all of the things that Jesus has done in eternity past could not be contained in the books, in not just the world, but of the universe. This is not just hyperbole. This is a great, great God. We've seen a thorough and comprehensive portrait of this Savior given to us in John. So as we close the book on this one, are you trusting him? Are you following him? Are you endlessly swiping left-handedly the debit card of God's grace through Christ? Are you growing in your love for him? Are you not? Are you not trusting him? Do you still have questions? Do you still have obstacles which are preventing your faith in him? minor or significant. I say this every week, but we would love to talk to you after. I would love to talk to you afterward, to hear from you, to hear of your doubts, to pray with you. Just as one of my favorite pastors, who I think Peter would agree with, says, I'm not the guy with all the answers, but I'm the guy who can point you to the guy. And I think all of us would agree here. Come and talk to us. If you have questions about who Jesus is, what it would mean for your life to be his and to follow him, don't leave here tonight. Don't leave the gospel of John behind without figuring out what to do with Jesus, without figuring out what his grace might mean for your life. What a gospel that God has given us through John. What a savior, what a God. Don't leave this book behind. Keep returning to it in your own daily personal reading. Come back to it. Perhaps now begin reading Ecclesiastes alongside of it. This is going to be a good book. I'm looking forward to it. But first, come back next Sunday. I'm excited, brother, to hear from you. Let's thank the Lord for this gospel and for his grace. God, we are floored put on the ground on our face. Not just that you would create the universe. Not just that you would make yourself one of us to live for us, to die for us. Not just to record these events that we might still know and understand and believe them. But that you have adopted us as your sons and daughters. That we don't just get to know the infinite God of the universe, but that we get to love him. That we get to know you as Father. God, we are thankful for this time together, these last nine months through this gospel. We pray that in the reality of who Jesus was in his earthly ministry and is today as king of the universe, of reigning over the cosmos and over our lives. We pray that the realities that we've learned and that we've seen might never leave us the same, that might, you might continue by your spirit, by your word, through your church to remind us of our weakness, to remind us of your grace, to remind us that we are not as strong as we think we are, but that you are. Lord Jesus, continue to build your church through us weak and fearful and timid people. Let the world not see us and our good ideas, 
but might see your great grace and your great power. Might we as your people continue to decrease that you might increase. And we pray that you might do all of these things for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.